0: Well, if you've been with us at Christchurch Hillsford over the last number of summers, you may have noticed that systematically we've been going through each of the collections of the songs in the book of Psalms. Um, And the Psalms, there are 150 altogether, they are split into five collections, five books as they're described. And uh, this summer we've been looking through Psalm Book 4, that is Psalm Chapter Ninety through to chapter 106, and literally they are described as a collection of hymns. I found this earlier, this is the uh, school hymn book of the Methodist Church, which was given to Alan Schranks of Isis Street, Illsfield, back in the 1920s. It's essentially that, it's a little gathering of hymns for the people at that time. Next summer, if you want to know, we're going to be looking at the Psalm Book 5, and the summer after that, we're going to go back to one psalm, which is the longest psalm of the whole Bible, Psalm 119, and we're going to spend seven weeks in that as well. If you're new to the Bible, and you're new to church and stuff like that, don't panic. It's great to see you here. Um, but if you want to, I don't want to patronize you here, but if you look down at your Bibles, you'll see the big numbers, basically are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the, are the verse numbers, and I'll be referring to those things as we go through the talk. And again, if, if you don't have a Bible at home that's easy to read, Please steal one of ours. It would be a great joy that they all leave and we have to find some new ones. But let me begin, if I can, by giving you a tiny summary of each of the collections of uh, psalms within this whole collection of 150 psalms, the the five books, if I possibly can, just in case you didn't remember from three summers ago. Okay, so let's kind of work through uh, some of those. So Psalm Book 1 begins, Chapter 1 to Chapter 41. And uh, they're mainly psalms of the great King David. Many of them, many people would consider that they, they act really as the introduction to the whole collection of 150. Particularly the first two psalms are an introduction to the whole. Uh, they're typically prayerful songs and they are crying out to God. Many of them through life and particularly in times of distress. I wanted to point one thing out which, which I found really helpful over the summer and that is this book, uh, The Way of the Righteous in the Muck of Life by Dale Ralph Davis, a preacher known to many of us, who, who really just writes um, just some devotional kind of thoughts about the first 12 chapters of the book of Psalms. Really helpful for your quiet times, your devotions in the morning uh, if you want to have a look at that later. It's only £6 and if you want me to get you some, uh, do let me know for next week. So that's Psalm Book 1. Psalm Book 2 goes from chapter 42 to 72. Few Psalms of the King David. And now we get some other authors of Psalms. Notably Asaph and also uh, the Sons of Korah. Now the Sons of Korah, they are an Australian Christian rock band today with some seriously bad haircuts and tight jeans. Uh, but the Sons of Korah in the Bible, as of Asaph, They were given by King David, and you can read about this in 1 Chronicles, chapter 15 onwards. They were given by King David to lead God's people in singing God's praises within the temple. Now, book two, just to get a kind of theme what's going on, it's dominated by lament. Crying out to God, if you like, for their own sin, but also their increasing distress under persecution from others. And this leads to Psalm Books 3. Uh, it's, that's chapter 73 to 89. It's the low point, if you like, of all the five books. The people are, in song, pouring again their hearts out to God. And I would imagine if you turn to a Bible of the Christians in Syria or Iraq right now, these would probably be the most read pages. That is, too often I, I do hear people accuse God of, of, not, of saying, oh, God doesn't understand when people are going through difficult times. He's, he's distant at those times. Well, the Psalms, particularly book three. Oh, it's not the complete answer to times of trouble. But I guess it's the balm of assurance as you go through those times, saying that God is not distant from you in those times, that he's still Lord in those times and that leads if you like to the next book because the great refrain of book four the thing that keeps getting repeated is that phrase the lord reigns if you like it's it's the response to all the struggles of book three a truth i guess the lord reigns that we need to be reminded of tomorrow morning and as we go about our daily lives All the doubts that epitomise Book 3 are kind of responded to. The Lord reigns again and again and again. And it's a truth that we'll see throughout the chapter that we've just heard read. That takes us to Psalm Book 5. That's 107 through to Chapter 150. And you'll have to be here next summer to find out more about that. So please do come back. Time is short. Psalm 106 is very long. So let's get very quickly onto it and what i'm going to do is begin by if you like taking a bit of a satellite view of the whole psalm so you get an idea a big picture of where we're going please do have your bibles open and we're going to run through page i think we're on 608 for you guys now essentially psalm 106 is a really long series of events in the history of god's people israel and we could spend all of our time looking back and kind of drawing links and say, yeah, that verse and those people refer to that historical book within the Old Testament. We could do that. It would be interesting to some. But I'm not totally sure that that is the, the purpose of this psalm. It, I don't think this is written as a kind of a memory aid for people to remember all that God has done and the people have done throughout of, uh, salvation history. It's a song. And a song does more than, if you like, prose. Poetic song is written not only to enliven our minds, but also to engage our hearts. And also to elicit a response in our lives. So, why this list of historical events as a song? These are the events from probably the Exodus, the account of Moses delivering God's people out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness. And they reach as far forward as the people of Judges, the accounts that we were looking at just at the early part of the summer. Maybe even further to the Babylonian exile. If you don't know what that is, Bible overview, Tuesday night's a good start. A total period spanning well over 500 years. Now, the previous Psalm, Psalm 105. Well, that takes the earlier part of God's people's history, if you like. And what some, one, one commentator noted, he just said, well, Psalm 106, it's like the dark side of Psalm 105. Why? Well, you heard it. It is, if you like, as you look at every single episode within this psalm, it is a damning report again and again and again. Failure after failure, rebellion after rebellion. This psalm, as one person put it, it was a, it's, it's a song of corporate unfaithfulness, of community lament. I've actually titled this talk, I don't know if you see it on top of your pages there. It, I've started it, it's a record of failure. But the wonderful news of this psalm is it doesn't end there. Uh, big picture, you know, satellite view. This is also the song of God who, yes, his long-suffering with his unfaithful, ungrateful people. But it's a record, not of just failure of humanity, it's a record of God's unmerited and wonderful, unbreakable covenant love for his people. Of course, as you go through this psalm, it is an uncomfortable expose of God's people. And I... I can pretty much guarantee that at times today you will feel slightly uncomfortable. But these verses also shower us with the light and the joy of God's unquenchable, wonderful, overflowing love for those who trust him. That's the big picture. Okay? And with that in mind... Let's look how the psalm begins because it's very dark in the center. But look how the psalm begins it's praise. Let's look at that together. First point praise the Lord. Very simple. Song begins and ends. Notice it's the same both at the beginning and the end. Praise the Lord, it says. Clearly, that has to be, if if that's the case, the intended outcome of the whole psalm. Praise the Lord. It comes from the Hebrew word, hallelujah, which we've been singing in our songs today. Hallelujah, praise the, yah, praise the Lord, which is Yahweh here. Yah, hallelujah, yah at the end there. And think about what praising the Lord means, just for a moment. Because it's kind of a bit of a thing that you might, you know, trip off on a text. You know, someone says you, good news or something God has done in their lives, praise the Lord, yeah, and you don't think about it very much. It's not just singing a song or saying some nice things about God or even some very clever things about stuff that you've been learning in the Bible. Praising him is believing in him, trusting him, loving him, being and feeling devoted to him. It's when God, you look at and understand who God is and you say, you are more valuable to me than anything else in my life. Yes of course that comes from knowing him and understanding him as we look at him in his word but it must must not remain in our heads it's got to change our lives it's got to change when we're you know working in the home office or as a policeman or as an artist or in a bank praise the lord we must not jump over this kind of this heartfelt praise that begins this psalm. The psalm essentially says, at the beginning, God, I love you. God, I worship you. I give you everything. Praise is the goal of this psalm. Praise is the goal of the, the whole of the Bible. And it is to be the goal of all of our lives. The praise of God. The praise is worked out. Have a look. Verse 2, you see there, in a kind of thankfulness even in the midst of all the mess that follows, and if you maybe even look at your life and the mess of that, then thankfulness. It's worked out in thankfulness. But why? Do you see it? Why are we to be thankful? Well, the psalmist is clear, isn't it? Because God is good. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Now, despite all that you know of your own personal life, Despite all of you know of the lives around you and the muck of those lives and all of the lives of the people we're reading in this psalm here, God is good. And how do we know it? Because his love endures. His love endures. Even through all of that muck that we've read here. Maybe just personalise that for a second. Think about your own life for a moment. Just this last week. The accounts of times where you've ignored God, maybe. You've been unfaithful to him. His love endures through that. Think of even that moment, which no one else in this whole world knows. That you dread to ever be exposed. His love endures even through that. God has never broken his covenant of love, so... The point of the beginning of the psalm is praise the Lord. Give thanks to him because his love endures. Now we're going to come back. I know we don't normally do this. I'm pretty systematic in the way that I go through this. We're going to come back to verse 3 to 5. Right at the end. But we're going to now jump, if you like, to verse 6 through to verse 39. A massive chunk. And I'm going to run through it fast, okay? It's the central section of this psalm. And it really is the catalogue of failure. It's pretty miserable at times. But it's also a catalogue of God's faithfulness throughout it. So it comes to our kind of like little sub-point there. God is faithful despite the failure of his people. And let's look at the failure first before we look at God's faithfulness through it, if we can. I'm going to run through it quickly. Follow with me. I'm just going to highlight ten failures, ten sins of God's people. And you'll see the magnitude, but also just the scale of it, it's just, it gets worse and worse. Look at, follow with me. Verse 7, quickly. First one. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled at this rebellion. Verse 7. Verse 14. In the desert they gave into their cravings and they put God to the test. That's cravings leading to the testing of God. That's the second. Third, verse 16. In the camp they grew envious of Moses and Aaron. There's jealousy there. Verse 19, at Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol, cast a milk. There's idolatry there. Fourthly. Fifthly, verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promise. They are ungrateful. Sixthly. Verse 28. They yoked themselves to the Baal at Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the lifeless gods. There's unbelief there. uh, Seventhly, in verse 32, by the waters of Meribah, they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them. They angered God. Eighthly, verse 34, they did not destroy the people as the Lord had commanded them. Think of that in the book of Judges. That's what he's talking about there. There's compromise, there's assimilation there as well into a, a pagan culture. Ninthly, verse 36, they worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. There's false worship there. Tenthly, verse 37, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. There's infanticide. The list could go on and on and on. But why do you think the song draws stumps? Sorry, cricket analogy. Why do you think the song ends... At that last one I just mentioned. Let me read it to you. If you like the full indictment. Go with me to verse 37 if you can. These words aren't very nice. Listen if you can though. Because I think it's important. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and daughters. Whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds, they prostituted themselves. The point is, this is as low as humanity can go. Every person that has ever read this psalm, I guess, knows, and we all know right now. You don't go much lower than this, do you? One scholar wrote this, this, is the most dehumanizing thing a human can do. And let's be clear about this. God is, God's people aren't here. They're, they're not taking birds and they're, they're not taking bulls and goats and sheep and offering them as sacrifices to the idols in Canaan. No, this is no metaphorical language being used here. They're taking their children. And they're desecrating the land with their blood. Essentially, it's just Everywhere. And let's also be clear, and notice in verse 38, the, the blood is called innocent blood. I don't know if you see that little phrase there. It's a common phrase within the Old Testament. And Jeremiah, the prophet, just a few chapters, a few books on, uses the phrase of himself. And he's no like, perfect person at all. He's not innocent. He uses it in Jeremiah 26, and he says this, verse 15, Be assured, however, that if you put me to death, you'll bring the guilt of, the innocent, uh, guilt of innocent blood on yourselves. And what he meant by this was simply this. He said, he didn't do the crime that he was being accused of. He's saying, I'm innocent of that crime in this situation, therefore I'm innocent blood. That's the way the phrase is used, if you like, within the whole of the Old Testament. And the point, therefore, within this psalm is that these babies have not done anything. They've not done a crime worthy of being killed, if you like. And as human being among other human beings, horizontally, there is innocence. Vertically, of course, there's no innocence. We're all guilty before God. We've all failed him. We've all sinned, haven't we? We've all fallen short, we're, we're told. And also from conception, we're guilty of that imputed sin from Adam. If you want to ask more about that, please do later. That's throughout humanity. So vertically, there's a sense of guilt for all of us. But horizontally... In many circumstances, we can say not guilty, can't we? Let's give you a, a silly example. If you were to come and accuse me, well, you know, uh, and said, you know, I got drunk last night, I was unfaithful to my wife, I stole a car, I drove around the M25 at 150 miles an hour. I'd say, no, I'm innocent blood within that accusation. I was actually watching Match of the Day, so there we go. (laughs) Now, I can't say I'm innocent before God. But on that charge, if you were to bring that to me, I could say, no, I'm innocent blood. And these babies are innocent, as every baby is innocent horizontally. But as God is the Lord of all life, he can give and he can take it at any age, and In that he will do the baby or you no wrong. Some people here, I'm sure, know that absolutely awful pain. It's a refining pain, but it is a gut wrenching pain. Job 1 says this The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but still blessed be the name of the Lord. The point I'm making is that you cannot take the place of God. The sixth command is clear. You shall not murder. That is, you're not to take innocent life. And here is coming to a point now, and I say this very soberly, if you like. I've never spoken about it here at Christchurch or' I've spoken about it elsewhere. But I think it's important uh, that we do recognize that though this seems so archaic, doesn't it? And so removed in the past barbaric. It does highlight, for an issue, highlight an issue within our culture that I think we ought to speak into and address. Over 200,000 babies in this country last year were dismembered and killed and that is done legally and hardly anyone bats an eyelid. It's interesting, isn't it, that the slitting of a child's throat in the sacrifice to idols in Cana 3,000 years ago seems more humane than what goes on in our country today. Let me quote something that was chilling that was printed in the Telegraph newspaper just last month. It said this abortion, and that just is, let's be honest, dismembering of innocent blood, Is increasingly being used uh, simply as a form of contraception. MPs' official figures showed a surge in the number of women having nine or more terminations. Now, I stand before you today as a baby, if you like, whose mother was offered a termination for me. I also stand before you knowing that very likely some women, even gathered here, will have had an abortion. And I stand before you knowing, having known personally, a number of women who at my time in university were encouraged by their coaches to abort any unwanted pregnancies, so to not damage their careers in sport. And you know some of those women. Please know that I do not stand here condemning any one of you at all. But I cannot ignore these words and the application to us today. How have we got to this situation in our country? How had the people of God got to this situation in Canaan? They compromised, they disowned God, yes. They bought into a system of culture that meant that the sacrificing of their children become a necessity to their lives. And in their worship too. Whatever the system that the world comes up with, whether religious or secular, a system that is totally obscures God, contradicts his word and lures people to make sacrifices to the system in which they live, that defaces and destroys the image of God, that is children, that is a system of Failure. We can see how God views this practice as he describes those shedding innocent blood. It's uncomfortable, isn't it, in verse 39. Look at the phrase he uses. They are prostituting themselves. In older translations, I remember this as a child, they simply say they play the whore. Of course, when you play the whore, the last thing you want is a pregnancy, isn't it? And therefore, to satisfy the adulterous demands of a system, what you do, you eliminate the problem. It's interesting in that article, The Telegraph, I'm really sorry, every time I seem to stand up here, I get the worst and deepest and darkest passages. I'm looking forward to Philippians. (laughs) But in that passage, in the text I was looking at in The Telegraph, lifestyle abortions, as they were horrifically called, are the fastest growing area of terminations in this country. And essentially what they are is abortions out of convenience. Men and women are selfishly trying to maintain a lifestyle that will be dented by a beautiful life. It's not convenience, it's something far more dark going on. People are sacrificing life to maintain lifestyle. What are they doing there for? They're essentially saying they're slaves to a culture. They can't do without the lifestyle that they so want. And we hate to talk about this, don't we? I'm not particularly enjoying this right now. I don't know if you've ever noticed how if someone wants their baby, their baby is a person. And if they don't want their baby, their baby is not a person. Doctors are even encouraged to speak like this. The baby then becomes just a fetus. And if a mother wants their baby, it's illegal for you to kill that baby. But if the mother doesn't want the baby, it's legal then for that baby to be killed. It's not not comfortable this at all, is it? Abortion itself, well, everybody knows or willfully does not know how awful and murderous it is. And if you don't know, can I very gently and graciously encourage you to find out. Because once you do know how an abortion is executed, then I think you will not want to remain silent. Let me summarise, if you like, in a contemporary way. In the sacrificing of our children to literally the demons of deceit here. On the altar of abortion and the temples of planned parenting. We play the whore. And we cheat on God and give our heart to another. You've got to ask the question at that point, who's the Lord? In that person's life. So this song, uh, we've gone through those verses quickly. It's just failure, isn't it? Failure, 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 failure. Huge failure. But this song begins and ends with praise to God, remembering his steadfast, enduring love. And this song has beautifully got woven through it. Yes, you've got all that failure, which we've mentioned again and again, but woven in between that is faithfulness. The faithfulness of God throughout. Look at it. It's everywhere. Verse 1, you see it, his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 8, he saved them. Verse 10, he saved them. Verse 23, he relented to Moses' prayer. Verse 30, God responded in mercy as the plague was checked. Many times God delivered them in verse 43. Turn with me to verse 45. For their sake he remembered his covenant and out of his great love he relented. In other words, time and time again the people deserved the full weight of god's justice but he relented Yes, he passed over even the sacrificing of the children and you kind of got you, you get to the end of this and you go how how on earth does god allow permit that how could it be perfectly just and and, and be that one who's loving at the same time Why doesn't he just destroy, for example, a country that allows and permits and legalises 200,000 babies killed every year? And that is the tension throughout this song. And we come to that second little point there. God is just, but he loves us. In those last few verses, verse 40 to 46... It's what we know well. It's actually referring back to the story of Judges, which we looked at in sort of June and July time. God in his justice, what is he doing? He's handing the people of God over so that they might know his refining uh, as they are oppressed by uh, neighboring nations. God was just. He did not ignore their rebellion. But then verse 44... Even in the midst of his justice, he loves his people, those whom he's covenanted himself to, those who fear him. So his judgment is there, yes. but it is tempered, and that is a foretaste of what is to come. Oh, I wish I had time to go more into that. But Romans 3:25 puts it well in the New Testament. Hear what Paul says to the church in Rome. He says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, that is to appease his justice through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, trusting in him. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Hear what's going on here. In giving us his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus, God brings his love and his justice together in the most cataclysmic, blood-shedding death of his son on the cross. The justice that God's people deserved, all that we've read about in Psalm 106, all the justice that my sin deserves, your sin deserves, is placed on Jesus Christ. As a sacrifice of atonement, and they knew God's refining justice being handed over to the other nations, but they did not know the full fury of God's wrath, that was reserved for His Son, as it was placed on Him on the cross. The judgment is tempered in His love. I guess my plea for this, as we close now, will be: Do you know that? Do you know that love of God? His faithful covenant love for you expressed supremely in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we close, we're just going to turn to this last point very quickly as a conclusion. Let's see how we ought to respond to that love. Look at those last two verses if we can. It's it's very simple. Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name. And glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. God remains, we see there, holy and set apart as his justice and his love both remain. So praise God that we do not receive as our sins deserve. And if you look back on this talk and you think, well... I've got it out of that one, scot-free. He didn't mention any of the problems that I have, none of the sins, none of the rebellion. I'd say to you graciously, open up your eyes and have a look through the text. Yes, i focused on one particular sin, because I think we need to talk about that. But I don't think any of us can stand free from accusation. Knowing that, we must also know God's love Psalm 103, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, expresses it so well, doesn't it? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, our sins, the muck of our life from us. What's our response? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Give thanks for his saving, eternal love. Let me finish with a couple of applications, though. What about tomorrow morning? Let's go back to verse 3 to 5, just to finish with a few applications uh, to, finish, to end. As you go back, maybe tonight, you're lying in your bed, and, or tomorrow morning as you're getting ready for work, and you look back to the catalogue of failure in your life, I guess you will want to acknowledge your sin, yes. Yes. But I hope that you will find and remember the sweet pardon that we can know in Jesus Christ. For all the sins mentioned in this psalm, none are beyond God's cleansing love and his redeeming work of his son on the cross. Some of you need to know that today. Because you feel the weight of guilt that needs to be lifted off your shoulders as you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But how do we respond? Well, I guess verse 3 points us and says there's blessing available. There's blessing essentially is happiness. If you like, blessed are those who maintain justice and who do what is right. In a sense, he's saying if you set your face towards God, if you incline your heart towards God, there's blessing, there's happiness there. Yes, you've sinned, but you've been pardoned in Christ. Now, in response for your happiness and for his glory, what does it say? Live his ways. Do his will. Live justly. Oh, but we all saying, yeah, that's good. I like that, but I know my life. I know that maybe one day I'm going to be thinking that, but the next day I'm not. And I'm going to struggle. We know that sin remains. And that is why verse 4 is so crucial. Have a look at it. Remember me, O Lord, when you show your favor to your people. Come to my aid when you save them. It sounds like most of my prayers each morning, which is essentially, boil up down to one word, it's help, isn't it? You're essentially crying, singing to God, saying every morning, help me, Lord, help me. I don't have the strength, I don't have the patience, I don't have the willpower, you know, help me. Why do we need God's help, verse five? So that we might know what is best for us, what is good for us. What is most glorifying to God and join in Him praising him for that goodness. Spurgeon, the great preacher, local man, put it this way, of this verse. The psalmist's desire for the divine favour was excited by the hope that he might participate in all the good things which flow to the people of God. Let me finish with this. If you know right now just a weight of pain and of guilt and sin... It is your joy to be able to take it to the cross and know that it can be fully punished on your the, on the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, as Spurgeon put it, you may participate in all the good things which flow to the people of God. There's blessing there as we come to the cross. Let's pray as we close.